Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Dana Baumeister. Um, her background is in marine biology, resource conservation, and organismic biology and ecology. But the extra cool thing is she's also the co-founder and partner at Biomimicry 3.8. So Dana, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So I'm personally very excited for this conversation. I'm a big fan of biomimicry. Uh, I was first exposed to it in architecture school many years ago. Um, we did a case study on the Eastgate building in Zimbabwe. And that building, they mimicked the termite mounds to inform their cooling strategy. Um, so this idea of looking to nature to solve these problems really resonated with me and made a lot of sense to me. Um, but now my focus is more on conservation as opposed to architecture. So I'm very keen to have this conversation with you to see, um, explore this link between biomimicry and conservation. So um, let's dive straight in. So I've got a number of big questions to ask you. Um, okay. But before we do that, can you please explain to the podcast a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Happy to. Um, so yes, I am formally trained as a biologist, um, although I also have uh, minors in art and design. Um, so I've always had an interest in that intersection between the two. And um, for the last 22 years, though, I have been working in the field of biomimicry alongside Janine Benyus, who's the author of the book Biomimicry. Um, I met her shortly after the book came out and said, this is what I want to do. Let's make this happen in the world. And so for the last 22 years, I've been working on the verb of biomimicry, um, how we go about making it happen in the world, while Janine's been working on the noun. And so as part of that, um, we have created uh, the entity Biomimicry 3.8. So we work with organizations of all types around the world to bring biomimicry into practice to make it standard uh, um, in education, in, in research, in innovation, in design. I'm also a professor of practice and director of the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University. So we started the first world's first um, master's in biomimicry. It's an online program, and we have professionals that come from all over the world who are interested in becoming biomimics and um, and promoting the work of biomimicry uh, across the planet. So I I probably have, I'm sure others would argue as well, but I feel like I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. It's my life. It's not really a job. It's just what I do. It's, it's bridging that gap um, between the absolute genius in nature and this species called Homo sapiens that's kind of fumbling and tumbling along and could use a little help. Yeah, and there's a lot of genius in nature. Like there is a uh, lot. Yeah. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of lessons to learn. But what is biomimicry? Where did it start? And what is the rationale behind the philosophy? 
Yeah. So, well, biomimicry and it, you know, our definition is it's um, emulating nature's genius. Right? And so those those words are actually, you know, chosen pretty carefully. You know, there's a conscious intent to go out and ask the natural world for advice, to ask other species uh, for how we might better go about living and acting and designing and building and creating on this planet. And um, it is based on the premise that, well, if you look at the other species, they've been around a wee bit longer than we have um, and have worked out a lot of the kinks. And so it applies everything from, you know, tangible design in the built environment, such as architecture that you mentioned, um, to organizational design, to how we communicate, to how we design our systems. And so the the practice um, and the methodology uh, is really around um, figuring out what does that mean to do with intent, right? So that it's not just really haphazard. And we like to think of it as an emerging discipline of an ancient practice. So it's not like, oh, suddenly 21st century humans looked up and said, oh, we should ask nature for advice. I mean, we've been doing it as long as we've been sitting around the fires um, on the planet. Uh, it's only more recently that it's becoming a discipline with, you know, rubrics and methodologies and tools and techniques. And that's the work that, you know, that I've been trying to develop over the last 20 plus years is to to formalize it and not have it be just, a, you know, a random inspiration or, you know, a conversation that that might happen, you know, one day in the woods. So it's it's a formalization process. My uh, business partner, Janine Benyus, wrote a book in 1997 that captured stories that she saw happening around the world of people being inspired by nature and taking those lessons and applying them. And then she gave it a name. So she's the one who coined the term. And I joined up with her shortly after. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's been our work in the world. I love that. I mean, looking at the natural world and, and these animals and these ecosystems, they are the result of millions and millions of years of these iterations to, to their design. Um, right. Come like from a design background or engineering background, you come up with a concept and then you iterate on that. And these animals are, you know, the the final result of that. And there's many lessons to be learned in that if we just take the time to ask those questions and explore it a little bit more. Yeah, and not so much the final result, right? Because evolution is an ongoing process, yeah. but it is it is the the, the current best practice um, based on evolutionary history. Uh, we like to say we bring 3.8 billion years of R and D to the design table. Right? So that's the way that uh, we we definitely think of that. Right. Yeah. So that's the 3.8 and the biomimicry 3.8. Exactly. So three exactly. eight three point eight billion years of life on Earth. Yeah, it's actually 3.85, um, and of course, some are arguing it may be a little different, but 3.8 rolls off the tongue a little easier. It does a little bit better, yeah. <laughs> For the first big question, I guess, of the podcast, um, this is, was inspired by a quote, actually, that I stumbled upon a couple of years ago from John Dingle. I'm just going to quickly read the quote. So, living wild species are like a library of books still unread. Our heedless destruction of them is akin to burning the library without ever having read its books. So when I first read that, I was like, that's so true. Mm -hmm. so, so the question is, if we consider the natural world as a library of books with many still unread, what are the implications and consequences from a biomimicry perspective of destroying these ecosystems, killing these species, and ultimately losing biodiversity? 
Yeah. So, um, in fact, one could argue it's not just a library of books, but it's it's a library we haven't even cataloged yet, right? Like we we, we don't even know how many books are in the library, let alone the content of the books. You know, so. I believe the estimates are upwards right now about 2 million species that we've given names to, which basically means we know their name and where they live for the, and, and a, a very small fraction. Do we know much more than that? Um, I've read estimates anywhere from 30 to a hundred million species on the planet. So we've, you know, we're maybe at 2% if that, and you know, it all depends upon the mites that live upon the mites that live upon the mites. Right. Yeah. So, so there's, there's so much, um, diversity diversity in that. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to look at it. You could, you could really take a perspective where, you know, just the loss of that, that diversity in terms of, you know, strategies for living well, you know, so is the way I like to think about it. It's just a shame, right? Like, it's just a crying shame. It's, it's just like we, how we have so much sadness when you hear that a child has died versus an older person. It's like all this potential that has, you know, is, is tapping out and, and we, we don't even get to be the recipients of it's just, independent of whether or not you take a human centric view it's just incredibly sad that that all that potential is lost um but if you were to take a, a purely human centric view one could easily argue uh, that the loss of any species is the loss of a potential solution that is just not yet discovered that will help us learn to live a little bit more lightly and and ideally ultimately thrive on this planet you know i mean we might argue if we could ask the other species um how would they feel about this entity called homo sapiens sapiens and there's a good chance we'd be voted off the island vote right? for sure and then exactly. host a massive party wouldn't they that's exactly right so it it is about as janine will say about becoming a welcome species again and so, so we're, we're, we're not really a welcome species. And I feel like my work and my life has been to try to redeem myself as a human, you know, like I've, I've been mortified to be a human most of my life. And so my work is about trying to fix that and, and, and have it be that, that we can actually be embraced by the other species rather than merely tolerated, if that. So you mentioned wanting to redeem humankind. At what point did we kind of, stumble and get things wrong yeah is, is there like a, a moment in history where you're like hey this is that moment that yeah things started going a bit downhill right. for, for everyone well of course everybody would have a different argument and and one of my theories is that it was about it, it was when it was when christianity pushed the devil into the forest right so in the dark ages in the interest of eliminating paganism um, in order to uh, suppress paganism so Christianity could grow, of course, paganism was deeply rooted in honoring nature, was to equate the devil with nature by saying that the devil lives in the forest. And therefore, anybody who loves or worships or spend time in the forest is subject to or a... Um, you know, impacted by or influenced by the devil. And and then by linking those two together, I think that's when we begin to create the chasm and the separation of ourselves from nature. So then as soon as we started walking away from nature, then we basically begin the long process of 
of unlearning all of that knowledge and, and wisdom of, of and, and the fact that even in English today, when we talk about it, we talk about humans and then we talk about nature and we, we, we few people will actually recognize that, no, we are nature. Like we are one of the 30 million species and we're not immune to the laws of natural selection or any of that, you know, but we, we really truly see ourselves as a separate being. Yeah. You know? And in that separateness, we've lost, we've misaligned our strategies for living. That's really interesting. Like, so there was this connection with the forest and the devil, as you mentioned, or darkness way back many years ago. Well, so the, that was that was the messaging that came from the leaders in Christianity that linked that. And it wasn't so much that it was anti-forest, it was anti-paganism, and paganism was pro-forest. And so the way they did that is they put the devil in the forest. Oh, the forest was so scary. That's where you can get sick. That's where you can get lost. That's where the wolves live. That's where, you know, all this. And sort of created that fear. Because when I think of kind of a moment in time that was kind of significant to the negative impact that we're having, I, or I automatically go to, I guess, the Industrial Revolution and, and all that kind of stuff, which obviously has accelerated a lot of negative sure. um, things as well. But yeah, that story that you mentioned is not even something I even considered. Mm -hmm. I think it happened much sooner. Um and, uh, well, or at least that was the beginning stages of it. I mean, others would argue that the first seed that we planted, as soon as we lost nomadicism and started settling in place, um, because as soon as you settle, you lose flexibility. And, yeah. and therefore, um, with less flexibility, you need to create structures and systems that sort of keep you alive. And um, and then that means creating buildings and creating things that manage. And, and, and each one of those is a separation. Um, but I, you know, I think that even at that time, and, and as we know, many indigenous cultures weren't having that separation. And there's certainly indigenous cultures that have some degree of stability, some degree of stasis, and, and they have not created that boundary and that barrier. But that was about, you know, I mean, the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, that's when, you know, a lot more people were living in cities and pestilence and famine and drought and, you know, all those things. It was it was really that disconnect, mm -hmm. you know, from from the natural world. So that disconnect kind of started these things. And I guess the Industrial Revolution is perhaps a manifestation of, of that. Being fully disconnected, right? Yes. Because then what happened is we ended up prioritizing efficiency and energy conversion above all other factors right and yeah nature considers efficiency as, as a factor that's important but it doesn't take precedence over all other factors no matter what and the industrial revolution was ultimately about efficiency first and foremost yeah, it seems like we have a measurement issue we we are you know efficiency is something that we prioritize a lot and, and money and, and certain other things but they're not necessarily the right things to be measuring or putting all our eggs into those baskets. There are other things that need to be considered as well that we're not currently measuring as as a component of like a, a successful society or a happy society. Yeah. So there is a lot of argument about, you know, we measure what we value. And um, so it's and, and measurement is a byproduct of valuization and prioritization. And so it's an in indicator that we are missing out on other things that are important because we we don't have systems in place to measure them or to track them at some level. 
Alrighty. There are signs that our planet is in the midst of a sixth mass extinction. Do you believe that animals, plants, and other forms of life hold the answers to many of the problems that threaten their very existence? Oh, no question. Yeah, no question for sure. And I think in, at two levels, right? So I think that there's solutions that may be derived, inspired by, um, that will address what's causing the mass extinctions, right? So everything from how might we design different forms of plasticizers, right? So the bisphenol A and all the toxicity that's associated with that as an endocrine disruptor, you know, we could ask the very question of nature, well, how do you ensure that molecules maintain flexibility? Because that's what those plasticizers are trying to do. But we could also look at things of, you know, sequestering carbon or energy efficiency or all these things that we know are contributing to this, this state of being. But I also believe there's a huge amount that we can learn, not from all species, but from many species about the whole transition that we're in and adaptability, right? And so, what does it mean to even have things in place that make us resilient? Right? We could learn about the whole process of resilience from other organisms. So, yeah, there's there's no shortage of of what we ought to be learning if we just paid attention, for sure. Yeah, the challenge is convincing people to pay attention. So, I mean, yeah. that takes time and energy on their part and time is money and they need to be convinced that there is something that they personally can gain from that transaction. Uh, and to us, like it's it's very easy to see what that thing is, but um, yeah, I imagine it is a challenge um, convincing certain people. Or, or are you seeing that things are changing now versus uh, when you first started? I definitely think things are shifting. I think there's two things that are happening. One is um, the challenges are more in our face more than ever, right? Like as you've seen there in Australia, right? Suddenly it's like, oh, this is real. I can't breathe. There's so much smoke. Right. This is not some far off thing that's going to happen to somebody else somewhere else. So having it hit that much closer to home, suddenly people are like, hmm, maybe we should look around a little bit more. But the other thing that I'm seeing is there's a lot of really interesting research as of late that just shows what that separation from nature is doing to us. And that um, even just a little bit of time, even like what they're saying now, two, up to two hours a week, even spread out over the week, makes huge, huge differences in your health and well-being if you spend that time in nature. And so the biophilic work and, and the work about health and well-being, I think more and more people are seeing. And I think that's a critical first step, right? If you, How can you learn from something if you don't even visit it right? and you don't even spend any time? And these are, these are the little changes that we can integrate into kind of our daily lives, just even plants in your home or plants in the office. I, I know I've read some studies where they have introduced plants into an office space and then I've compared, you know, similar office space without plants and the office that had the plants introduced, their output increased. Um, yep. And yeah, that biophilia concept is another thing that is, I really find interesting because it seems like there is this disconnect, but that's that isn't a natural thing. We have this inclination to be one to be around nature, and it's just reminding humans that this is something that they would probably be interested in. Well, here's to put it in perspective. So, we've been around for three hundred thousand years. Right, three hundred thousand years. The agricultural revolution is only ten thousand years old. And the industrial revolution is you know two hundred and fifty years. So, like. 
1% of that time or less we've been living in this kind of state. And of course, that's just Homo sapiens sapiens. If you look at hominids, we're talking about millions of years. That kind of programming and that kind of exposure just doesn't disappear from the genetic code overnight, right? Just because we've got, you know, industrialization. It's deeply, deeply hardwired into who we are as a species. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that all of these, you know, mental health and suicide rates, all these things, I bet you'd be hard pressed to find one that wasn't somehow linked to our disconnect from nature. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But even that evolutionary part of, you know, even that part, I know a lot of people, I guess, for my personal family, my my mum is uh, (laughs) uh, not convinced on that. Um, And I remember I took her to a a museum recently and and they had animal skeletons there. And just seeing these, these, the skeleton of the animal, I found that was quite a unique way to show to her the similarities between a human and another Mm. animal because you can actually see the bones and the bones are very similar. The meat and everything on the outside kind of from a visual point of view, it's harder to make that connection. But when you just break it down to the skeleton, it's easier to see that. And for her, that was like the light switch moment in her Mm -hmm. head. Interesting. Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that that just that deep observation and that that just spending time would reveal some of these things to us and help us see, you know, that we look a heck of a lot more like other organisms than we do look like the artifacts in which we reside of our own being, for sure. Okay, so what are some examples of biomimicry solutions and research that can be applied to help conserve species and ecosystems? Well, you know, there's, of course, all of the research that's around, let's understand what these species are about. Um, But I think there's some interesting ones, like, for example, in um, India, where they're in Africa, where they're concerned about... elephants and elephants, you know, attacking villages, and then people want to call the elephants because there's there's overpopulation issues, is actually understanding what are the natural deterrents of elephants, right? And so bees are a great one. And so even just emulating the sound of bee hives can be effective in keeping elephants outside of villages. Um, and so there's some interesting, you know, linkages in the conservation space. Or another great one I saw was, um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of biorobotics because it's just like building robots for toys. But this particular one had built a, a fish robot that looked like the fish that it was swimming with and therefore it was able to take um, video footage of behaviors um, and get a much better understanding of how those fish live because it it literally appeared to the fish to be one of them right um, and, the, and and in a similar way by introducing a threatening kind of fish that's actually a robot, but without disrupting the ecosystem, it can scare away invasive species that would otherwise be there because they see a predator, but you actually haven't introduced the predator. So I think there's some interesting, um, fun ways to use lessons from nature and then an emulation in order to into uh, affect the conservation. The other thing that we're working on a lot at the built environment level is um, we're we're working with organizations that have 
you know, factories or schools, large built environment spaces and saying, shouldn't your development function like the intact ecosystem next door? So, for example, if X amount of water goes into the ground table, 30% of the rainwater goes into the ground table, your development ought to also put 30% of the rainwater back into the ground table so that we become um, net contributors to ecosystem services, not just detractors. And then, but how you go about doing that, yes, you can come up with a gee whiz technology that pumps it in, or you can look at the local species on how they're pumping water back down into the ground table and emulate that in order to do so. So then as a result, of course, everybody benefits, right? Everybody benefits from that system. So we've got a lot of different ways. In fact, our work in biomimicry is only around sustainability. Like we won't work on projects that don't have a sustainability win. Yeah, because I guess you could, coming back to the, the, the intention of what you're doing, like you obviously you can mimic certain things for good and bad reasons. Um, so those examples, there seem to be a couple of different types. What are the other different types of biomimicry? Yeah, so we also might mimic process. So you could mimic not just what nature is made, but how she's gone about making it. And so the hugely growing field of artificial photosynthesis is a great example of that, where it's trying to mimic the process of photosynthesis. So we're not trying to make solar cells that are in the shape of leaves, right? that, that has nothing to do with the ability to convert photons to energy. And uh, so that that work is mimicking that process. Or um, I've been doing a lot of work lately on mutualisms and how nature cooperates. And so that's a process in nature. And can we use those lessons for how to design better partnerships by looking at how nature does mutualism? So that would be emulating a process. And then the last level is emulating a system, right? So looking at a whole uh, system. So not just what is made, how is it made, but how does it all interconnect? And so, for example, we've done work on nutrient cycling and can the rules and processes and strategies of nutrient cycling in a system um, be emulated, say, for the guidelines for a circular economy? Okay. So the current thing at the moment that is gaining a lot of momentum is this, the climate change movement. So climate change obviously poses a fundamental threat to places, ecosystems and species, including us. How can we use biomimicry to design solutions for mitigating and potentially reversing climate change? Yeah. So um, one resource I highly recommend is a, a project called Project Drawdown. Um, and, and this is really in that space of reversing. Like, so there's a lot we can do to slow down our emissions, but more importantly, we got to like draw down that carbon. We got to get it back down to the earth. And, um, there's a number of nature based and nature inspired solutions in that project drawdowns collection. Um, and some of it is like how we do, say, regenerative agriculture or regenerative agroforestry. That is, can we learn from, um, system-based processes so that our bio-based efforts, you know, a field, a forest, uh, our yard, um, are drawing down as much carbon as they possibly can. So there's there's a lot of really good work happening in that space. Um, biochar and, and all of these different pieces that are asking, can biological processes be enhanced to pull that carbon down? Um, 
And then there's a whole collection of things that are around. Um, yes, there's, of course, energy efficiency things. How can we build more effective solar, more um, powerful wind, you know, um, even fish-friendly, salmon-friendly, hydroelectric, right? So there's so many questions within all of these um, designs that can be bio-enhanced by or bio-optimized by asking nature for advice. Um, even things like, like, for example, I worked on a project that it was it was more of a nutrition-based project and food waste. But one of the solutions that came from this, or these these solutions that came from it, um, ended up in resulting in eliminating food waste for this particular product, cut the sugar in half, so nutritionally improved, but it completely eliminated the drying oven process of the crew, of the manufacturer of that product, and. I mean, we're talking about, a, it was a cereal that's on millions and millions of store shelves, right? And if you can completely eliminate a whole process that is an energy consumer, then you've had a net positive benefit for climate change, right? And so at all of these levels, there's so many different ways. I've, I've done some work with Altair, which is a software company that makes um, engineering design software. And their Optistruct is... Ultimately, at its core, uh, it's a, a product called Inspire that's based on the bone algorithm and bone light weighting. And if all engineers light weighted, okay, the net impact would be if you took the entire United States and all of our national forests all and all of the national lands and how much carbon they draw down, we would eliminate that much carbon going into the atmosphere by simply using lightweight across the board. Lightweight. What's light? Lightweight. Lightweighting would be eliminating all material that you don't need. Okay. Right? And so, you know, you build a structure and we're so crude in our designs that we just make it thick, you know, but it doesn't need to be that thick and it doesn't need to be solid. In fact, it might be better off looking more branch like, you know, like a, like a tree. And so two things happen when you carve away all that extra material you don't need, say in a car, um, you need a lot less energy to move that material because it's lighter in terms of. But you also didn't need to produce, you know, the extra weight in aluminum or steel or whatever it might be. And so just lightweighting alone would have huge climate um, impacts if we just did that and, across and the board. And it even seems like from a business perspective, that would be advantageous as well. That's a no-brainer. Um, so a win-win. Um, so optimizing these processes, simplifying them as well, um, and also the, the products themselves how are these optimizations being informed or mimicked by nature? Well, so in that particular one, it's an algorithm, right? So it's in the software and it's an algorithm. And so you, you design it in your crude fashion. You plug it into the software. The software uses the algorithm, which looks at stresses and strains and basically carves away any material that's not under stress or strain um, and adds it until you get this optimization. But that algorithm is based on the growth of, of branches and trees and the way like if you were to take a cross section of your femur bone, how bone grows. And so it's a process, it's an emulating a process in nature and then putting that into the software platform so that we end up with that solution, that design drawing in the end. Interesting. Yeah. So I find that 
So the, the end result or the product, you may not necessarily see from the surface that link, that relationship to nature. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot that you may not realize, which in, in some ways is... Probably most is, of it. Well, it depends. It It depends. It depends on who wants to tell the story and why. Um, And do they want to emphasize that or not? In some cases, you know, it's people are maybe more likely to adopt it because they're not, you know, wow, that came from nature. But nobody questions nature. Nobody's like, oh, nature doesn't know what she's talking about, right? (laughs) But um, but some may be resistant to adopt something if they think it's it's bio inspired versus a human clever a clever human came up with it um and so you know i think it depends sometimes i mean i always feel like there should be some sort of thanksgiving and honoring that's given back to the species we we have a program called innovation for conservation and ultimately it's about uh, royalties for habitat you know if you made a new tape that's inspired by the way geckos attach to walls then you ought to take some of the profits and protect habitat for geckos and um, and so it's right now it's it's like a one percent for the planet. It's kind of a more voluntary process, and it's not as established as it needs to be. But that is a place that we're working to really protect the wellspring of where these ideas come from. What are the main roadblocks that need to be addressed to make biomimicry a mainstream approach and philosophy? Um, well, I keep coming back to this one. I mean, the more disconnected we are from nature, it is a significant roadblock. Like it's hard to learn from something that you don't love and that you don't know. And I, yeah, I gave a talk once in New York City and somebody asked me afterwards, they said, you know, the, the urban footprint and the ecological footprint of an urban dweller is so much smaller than somebody who lives in rural communities. Shouldn't we all live in cities? And I said, I totally get that from a logic perspective. My brain is tracking you, but my heart and my gut are just like shirking because the more disconnected we become. And I think it's one of the problems in a lot of conservation movements that are about keep humans out so that we can protect this thing. But the more you keep humans out, then how do they grow to love that place so that it it wants to stay? So I think that um, one of the biggest threats and one of the biggest roadblocks is that that disconnect um, and living in a digital world and, and so on. But yet at the same time, we've swung so far that way that more and more people want to go out and be in nature. And therefore, it's also an opportunity and, and, and not even a roadblock. The other big roadblock I would offer up is uh, human cleverness. Right? For, for those that believe humans are on a superior pedestal, and then it's a big leap for them to think about learning from, say, blue mussels, which might be on their dinner plate. Yeah, a humility thing. Yeah, yeah. You need to you need to be willing to eat a slice of humble pie. Humility is is something that probably is becoming less common. It seems. Um, I, I don't know why that's the case. Well, culturally, we don't seem to, we, we have, you know, we put people on pedestals. Although it's interesting, you know, I'm aware of the Maybe we need to remove and, pedestals completely. Or put all the other organisms up on one and then we, <laughs> we're yeah. down one. Yeah, yeah. all of that. But yeah, the whole Instagram and the Instagram followers, I mean, all of that is ultimately about pedestals. Yeah, it definitely is a balanced thing. Like online, offline, we need to get that balance. Um, you know, connecting with nature, like the thing you mentioned where, you know, keeping humans away from these animals. If we get that balance wrong, then that could only further disconnect us from it. 
So in, in all these things, it's, it's, it is finding a balance between these, you know, these different ideas. And yeah, with the social media part, having this conversation could potentially inspire people to go out to nature for the first time. And but obviously, if you just were on social media all the time, then you're on social media all the time and that balance is wrong. So it's harmonize, harmonizing those two domains is, is, is something that's quite important and something that I'm quite interested in is harmonizing the online and offline domain. But then that balance obviously extends to everything else that we do as well. Mm-hmm. Left versus right in terms of politics, like it's obviously the correct answer is somewhere in the middle for the most part. Well, at least recognizing and honoring that the gradients exist, right? I mean, we use too much totally. language that's that's black and white and polarized and versus and all of that. And there, that is one thing that is true of nature. It's all a big gradient, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, even the fact that we want to call a species a species, like, really? No, that's just us putting things in compartments, right? Yeah. And it's really all one big gradient. And if we could start seeing that interconnectivity of everything, I think that w- that alone could start transforming forming the way we view the world. Yeah, this black and white thinking, this binary thinking is a problem. Um, like it's human nature to obviously try and make sense of things and to understand things, make it legible. So in order to do that, we try and simplify it. Like we try and, you know, try and simplify it so that it's black and black and white or, you know, put things into categories and label things and stuff like that. But some things are intrinsically complex and it's very dangerous to oversimplify it or simplify it Most to the point where it's, it's not... Yeah, most right? things. Most things, that's right. But then that, that's going against our human nature to try and simplify things. So that's where they butt heads is things are intrinsically complex, but we as humans want to try and make sense of things and part of that process is trying to simplify yeah. it. Well, and it isn't so much simplifying, but what we're looking for is recognition, right? And and the reason for this, again, this is our evolutionary history. So we have... We have these big brains and metabolically they, they need a lot of fuel. They need a lot of energy. And this is why cognitive bias arrives. Really cognitive bias is, is an energy uh, brain survival strategy. So you, you're walking through an unfamiliar territory. You see an organism and you go, oh, that's a tree. I don't think I've ever been hurt by a tree. Trees are probably not dangerous. I don't think anything's going to fall. Good. Tree good. I don't have to consume any more brain power to assess that. I come across a four-legged animal. It's bigger than me. It's got claws. That's not good, right? So it's 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 about our survival of classifying, you know, threat or not threat. Um, and so we use these cognitive biases to go, oh, I recognize that. It's okay. I can move on. I don't have to expend energy going, what is that thing that's got a trunk and branches and leaves? And I am not, you know, like that would take a lot of cognitive power if you had to do that for everything you encountered in your life. So that's why we quickly label things so that we can move on and save that power for something else. Right. Um, and again, if we recognize that that's what's happening, then we need to at least honor that. Be like, okay, I've quickly called that person black, and I've assumed because of black, this, this, and this, and this, right? Or male, I've assumed this, this, and this. And if we can train our brains to think a little bit more nuanced and not associate all of those other brain connections to that. Yeah. You know, so that it's it that helps us navigate the world without being 
so energetically exhausted, um, but recognizes that it's our brain. It's a survival tactic, you know, so it's not really simplification. It's just, it's a recognition that we're seeking. Yes. Yes. True. True. We're going to weave it over time, but there's one question that I just popped into my head that I'd like to ask. Yeah. And that was when you talked about artificial intelligence before. Due to the nature of artificial intelligence, it grows very rapidly. And it grows rapidly from a, a point where we input code into it. Like we program this thing, we give it, a, we tell it what to do. Is it wise for, our, for humans to, to be programming these things? Like if we, this is, seems to me to be a great example of where we could apply biomimicry is to artificial intelligence. Because if we get it wrong, we could really get it wrong. And, you know, programming a robot with human wisdom currently is a very risky thing in my mind. Oh, we, we are doing it and we are getting it wrong. And it isn't so much that it's wrong, but it's biased, right? Mm. It's extremely biased by the programmers, right? Um, based on their life upbringing and so on, right? So just the very notion that, I don't know what exactly what the statistics are, but a substantial proportion, let's say 75, 80% of programmers are white males in their 20s and 30s, maybe, right? So do you want all the algorithms that run the world to be written by the biases of 20 and 30-year-old white males? Like, you know, so, so that, that, that's already in place and they've seen it, say, for example, in the algorithms for the self-driving cars, right? That they're not, even if they're not, they're not racist, they're not, you know, bigoted or whatever, but when they're looking at, say, pictures to train the AI of that's a person walking across the street, they inherently put a lot more images in of white males. Than they do. And so they're finding that the algorithms are inherently biased against darker skinned people, right? Not because they chose that or whatever, but the algorithm will always be able to pick out a white male and not hit the white male. But an animal or a child or a dark skinned person or an obese person or all these things are not in their, you know, in their like their training process. And that's that's the real risk with the, all of this artificial intelligence is that we're not there. More people are talking about it. But to me, there's so much hubris involved in thinking about artificial intelligence. And in, in, if we can't even acknowledge that there's hubris involved, then we're doomed to fail. Right. We're doomed to have. Well, we're doomed to have a lot of unintended consequences. There seems to be a data issue with the things that you're talking about with the, like if they had more. If they put more data into this car, the information into the car with these different animals so that they could identify them, uh, then they could also program the car to try and avoid those things as well. But one thing, like the ethics part is one thing that I find quite interesting because that's something that you, like, let's say you're, you're in a car and there's two people on the car, on, on the road, and one's a child and one's an older person. And you're in a situation where the car has to, Hit Make one it, of them. has to hit one of them. So mm -hmm. you have to program that decision into the car. And that's an ethical exactly. question. That's, that's exactly right. So that those kind of things, we're, we're at a point where we're programming humans essentially and we're giving them a code of ethics to, to follow. And we just need to be very sure that we're telling it to do the right thing. 
Well, and we we have to even have a conversation about quote unquote what the right thing is. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And and, right and that's for also us, right maybe different to right for you and right exactly. for humans, maybe different to you know animals. And so th- this is yeah the biomimicry thing and looking to nature and asking these questions that I think is really appropriate, really appropriate. Sorry for this new um, era that we're moving into. This this artificial intelligence, this these robots. This is the time, ironically, when thinking of robots, we should be thinking about trees. That's exactly right. And it can't replace ethics and morals, right? We still have to have that conversation because, I mean, if if you were to look at it purely from a natural selection point of view, right, you would take out the one that's past their reproductive age, right? If you were to purely look at it, right, if you had to pick. But morals and ethics, what if the one who's past their reproductive age happens to be a, you know, solving cancer and they're a week away, right? And the little kid is an awful bully that's pounding on everybody in the playground, right? You know, I mean, there's all these questions that, that uh, you know, that arise. But the, the point is, is that the conversation has to happen around it. Not a not a thirty set, not a thirty word tweet, but an actual conversation. <laughs> exactly. There's so much you could post on a 30, 30 character tweet or a thirty word tweet. Uh, although um, Donald Trump likes to. <laughs> that's his primary form of communication. It seems like, right. anyway, that's a separate topic. So, how can people connect with you or learn more about your work? Yeah, well, so there's a couple of options. There's lots of ways to connect. So, of course, you can visit our website, which is biomimicry.net. Um, our sister organization is biomimicry.org, um, and that's a nonprofit. And they work on. Um, they have a student a global design challenge every every. Um, couple years and they have a database called asknature.org so you can type in how does nature do x and you can find solutions and then they have a k through 12 stem program um biomimicry.net we work with companies we work with organizations we have a professional training uh, we have speakers um so we're a b corp we're a benefit corporation and then you can also visit us at biomimicry.asu.edu which is the master's program the online master's program and um, see the different offerings that we have through uh, through ASU. So there's there's a lot there's a lot of ways, and then we also there's a global biomimicry network. So there's a good chance, depending on where you're listening, that there's one in your neck of the woods. Um, there is a biomimicry Australia group, and uh, a couple of my alumni have started that um, in Australia. Actually, about out of Melbourne, uh, they're out of Melbourne, and. Um, but yeah, so there's probably a good chance that there's a network near you as well. So listeners, check that out. I would actually personally yeah, check or join that out. me in Costa Rica next, you know, in a yeah, couple definitely. months too. I'll put all that info somewhere on, on social media and podcast notes. That'd be great. Final question: What message or question do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe? Well, I would ask yourself. Um, I, you know, I'll actually ask something of you that was asked of me recently. And um, you talked about balance, and I've been thinking a lot about it, which is how do you find the balance between saving the planet and savoring the planet? So I'm going to let people sit with that one. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. 
Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.